led in worship. In the mid-1800s, this bright young physician right up here, he came up with a revolutionary procedure that has saved millions of lives. As he worked in the hospital in Vienna, he was working in the the hospital of Vienna, he observed an alarming problem taking place there in the hospital. Many women in the maternity ward, after giving birth, they were getting sick, they were acquiring a fever, and they were dying. In fact, it wasn't uncommon during this time for hospitals to report a death rate among new mothers of 30%. 30% of mothers giving birth in the hospital, they were dying. It wasn't uncommon. So when this particular doctor up here, when he discovered a new procedure that lowered this mortality rate all the way down to 3%, he was understandably enthusiastic about this discovery. Not only was this new procedure very effective in saving the lives of mothers, but it didn't require any special resources, and it didn't really even require any special skill to carry out. All that the doctors had to do to practically eliminate this mortality rate among new mothers was to simply wash their hands. That's all the doctors had to do. And, and the, the, statistic, the statistics spoke for themselves. It was a highly effective way to prevent infection in these new mothers. The results of washing hands were undeniable. The medical field could see that. But in spite of the clear evidence that hand washing saved lives, the medical community at this time largely rejected this revolutionary medical procedure. Dr. Samuelweiss, I'm trying to say his name correctly, hope I'm, hopefully I'm at least close, the, his radical new approach was rejected. And there were several reasons for this. For one, Dr. Samuelweiss was not a nice person when he went to implement this new procedure. If a clinician did not wash their hands, he would stand by the sink. And if the clinician didn't wash his hands sufficiently well enough, he would berate the clinician openly. He would ridicule them. And so that, that didn't work well with sensitive egos in uh, the medical field. The second reason was that doctors rejected Samuelweiss's hand washing was this. Um, They rejected it because accepting this approach, accepting that they needed to wash their hands before seeing each patient, what that meant was that the doctors had actually been responsible for all of these deaths. And that didn't sit well with them. They were the experts after all. They had studied, and so the implication that they were wrong, that they were responsible, that was a hard one for them to accept. And so it took the medical community another 50 years. This is the crazy thing in my thinking about this story. It took them another 50 years to accept the need of washing hands before seeing each patient. And in the meantime, during those 50 years, doctors continued to see patients with unwashed hands and many preventable fatalities resulted. Sad story. But just like these doctors refused to accept their need for hand washing, pride can keep us 
from accepting many things that are unpleasant to us, unpleasant truths that are radical, that are life-changing, that would save us from so much pain and suffering. Pride can keep us from accepting that if it's unpleasant to us. And this is why many of us miss out on an experience with God. We want the good things that God has to bring to our life, that he wants to give to us. But letting him be God of our life doesn't appeal to our sensitive egos. This is the problem with pride is that it keeps us from God. It keeps God out of our life. Thankfully, God understands this. God is not offended by this. He gets it that we struggle with pride. And he knows how to heal the sickness of pride that we all suffer from. So today we're continuing our series on, on, uh, that we're calling Living Humbly. And last week we saw how humility characterized Christ's life. Even though he is God and he's Lord of all, creator of all, he left heaven and he came down to this earth. Though king of kings, lord of lords, he came to humbly serve. This characterizes Christ's life. And so as followers of him, this is, this is our, our example. Humility characterized his life. And because he was humble, this is, what, this is what humility allowed Jesus to do. It allowed him to be free to love. Free to love in any way that God called him to love, that his father was directing him to love. He wasn't hung up by pride and said, no, no, no I'm not willing to go there. I'll, I'll do this, but no, no, I'm not going to do that. He was free to love even to the extent of dying on the cross for us. Humility freed Christ to live this incredible, beautiful life. And this is what is our privilege. It's our privilege to experience this same life as followers of Jesus. Pride is defined by a preoccupation with ourselves. And the problem is we are all naturally proud. We're all naturally preoccupied with ourselves. Like if you just kind of take a quick inventory on how much you think about yourself as opposed to how much you might think about others or, or something like that, we are naturally preoccupied with thinking about ourselves, which is why any attempt that we make at humility is bound to fail. It's only going to make us more proud. If we fail to achieve our goals of what we think humility is, if we fail at that, then we're going to be down on ourselves and more preoccupied with ourselves. And if we succeed, then we're going to become proud about our humility. Look how humble I am. It's, it's bound for failure if we try to achieve humility by looking within and looking at our own resources, because that is the definition of pride, looking within. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a radical procedure that God gives us that is able to heal our proud hearts. But before we begin, I uh, just want to remind you that you can find study guides. We're writing up a study guide for each of these sermon presentations in this series, Living Humbly. They're especially designed for small groups, so you can go to our website and you can click on small group study guides, but a small group can just be one other person. If you are not in a official small group yet, you're, you certainly can try and join one still, um, but maybe you just want to get with a family member or a friend um, and, and, and go through it. There is a blessing in this, so just go to medfordsda.org if you haven't done so already. Just check them out. Look at them. They're really easy to use. Uh, you just read through it and answer the questions, and uh, 
you can, you can gain a lot more uh, out of the series by using this resource, we believe. All right, so the title of the message this morning is The Cure for Pride. And before we get into it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we need you to get through to our hearts and our minds. Naturally, we are proud, and we don't want to hear what you have to say if it doesn't, if it doesn't appeal to our, our sensibilities and to our egos. God, we pray for your mercy. Pray that you'd open our ears. Pray that you'd set us free to be humble. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to be looking at 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And uh, if you'd like to use your pew Bible, the page is up there. It's page 435, so you can find it really easy. Uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Israel, this is the context of what's happening in chapter 7, Israel is on a temporary spiritual high. Ever had one of those before? <laughs> Okay, temporary spiritual high. Things are going really well. Solomon, the king of Israel, he has just finished this magnificent temple for God, just beautiful construction, marble temple, gold. No, um, no expense was, was held back in building this temple, just incredible structure. The nation of Israel has gathered there in Jerusalem to worship God. There's this, there's this coming together of the entire nation to worship God. Things are looking really good spiritually for the people of God. They've come to dedicate the temple uh, to God. And so Solomon stretches out his hands to God in prayer. And he prays this beautiful prayer, offering this temple to God as a dwelling place, asking God to accept this, this place as, as, as a place for him to dwell. And verse 1 of chapter 7 tells us that after Solomon prayed, that God responded by sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifices that were offered on the altars. And the glory of God, this, this brilliant presence of God, fills the temple and it is so thick and bright and powerful and amazing that all the priests have to stand back. The temple is just radiating with, with the glory of God. But even though God gave this dramatic evidence of his close relationship with the people, even though, that, even though God was dwelling there now in this temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's prayer said something that surely must have stuck in the hearts of the people. There was something in that prayer that, that I'm, I'm sure must have given them pause. Because in that prayer, Solomon indicated that Israel, as close as they seemed to God at that moment, would reject God. He mentions that in his dedication prayer. Second Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 6, previous chapter, it records Solomon's lengthy prayer. He prays this long prayer. And a good portion of this prayer, a significant portion of this prayer, is a prayer for mercy. Solomon's asking God in advance for mercy upon his people when they reject him. Solomon knew that pride would turn the hearts of the people, no matter how close they were to God at that moment. He knew that pride would, would be there, and it would show up. It would raise its ugly head, and it would express itself in this terrible expression of worshiping idols. They had all kinds of degrading acts of worship that were involved in worshiping idols. But the point was that he knew that, that they, their pride would seek them to have a more, lead them to seek a more appealing form of worship. And they would seek after idols. But even though, even though we might be sick with pride, even though we might reject 
God. And even though he might know that we're going to reject God, he, he can see in advance that pride is going to, going to express itself in the, in the lives of these people here. And the consequences would be painful. They would be suffering the consequences of this choice. God, even though he knows this, God still remains faithful to unfaithful people. I'm so grateful for that. God knows that we are dust. He knows that our commitments are like worthless, but he is committed to us and he remains faithful to us. Here, here in, in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, look at what it says. He provides a way of relief for unfaithful people. Let's read it. Verse 14 says this. God is speaking here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is the cure for pride. It's prayer. Prayer is the cure for pride. He's telling, God is telling us this. He says, if my people will pray, then I will heal. I I will give them the healing that they need. I'll hear and I'll forgive. Now, it's significant that God's instruction to pray was not new information. It may even be like it is for you right now. Okay, Pastor Brian, we have heard that we need to pray before. Are you going to spend this whole time talking about prayer? We already know that we need to pray. Like, they knew. They knew that prayer was powerful because Israel had a rich history of God answering the prayers of his people. They could come up with all kinds of examples. I'd like to just mention a few that would have been in their thinking. They knew about this. After Israel left Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt, they left Egypt, they traveled to the promised land. On this journey, they were attacked by a nation called the Amalekites. And when the Amalekites came and attacked Joshua, Moses' young protege that was um, being trained to, to take over when Moses would pass on, Joshua steps up and he leads the forces of Israel out into battle. Moses goes up, up onto the top of this hill and he observes the battle and something very unusual is, it takes place there. As Moses is lifting his hands in prayer, they notice that God's people begin to win the battle. But when Moses got tired and he couldn't keep his hands up and he couldn't continue to pray in that posture, they noticed that the Amalekites would be winning. And so they sat Moses on a rock, put one person on one side, Aaron on one side, his brother, her, one of the leaders in Israel, uh, on the other side, and they held up his hands and he prayed. And because Moses prayed, because his hands were held up in prayer that day, Israel was victorious over their enemies. It was clearly connected to prayer. Now, many years later, after Israel entered the promised land, Joshua, and well, maybe not many years later, but sometime later, um, after they entered the promised land, Joshua is fighting, and his army is fighting uh, against another enemy nation. They're on the verge of defeating this, this, this nation. Israel has them on the run. They're going to be victorious here, but the problem was is the sun was about to set. You may know this story. And they knew that once they ran out of light, that their enemies would be able to scatter much more easily, and they would be able to get away, and they would be able to come back at some later time and cause them trouble. And so Joshua looked up to God, and he prayed, and he asked God to make the sun not move so that they would have light 
to defeat their enemies. And the Bible says that for about a day, the sun stood still and Joshua was able to achieve victory over Israel's enemies. Israel was able to find relief over their enemies. Why? Because Joshua prayed and God answered the prayer. Another one. When David, Solomon's father, the one here praying in in 2 Chronicles 6, when David became proud and he began to trust his own might, he began to, to, to kind of stroke his ego and, and to, uh, he, he declared something called a census that would evaluate just how powerful he was. And it really it was, it was a denial of God's ability to protect his people. And because David got proud, a plague broke out among the people of God. And it was killing thousands of people. David was heartbroken because he knew this was his fault. It's because of his pride that thousands of people were dying. He was, he was heartbroken. And so he goes to God, and God instructs David to pray. He, go, he says, go to a certain place and pray and offer, offer sacrifices. And when David prayed, the plague stopped. The people of Israel had all of these examples fresh in their thinking. They knew that God answered prayer. They knew that prayer worked. Even though they had, but even though they had ample evidence, God knows that pride leads us to reject practices that require humility. Who, I mean, who wants to pray? Who likes to admit that they need help? We'd much rather rely on our best thinking and go to work to fix the problem, right? Like when we face issues and problems in life, really these are calls to prayer. But if you're like me, my first response is, what do I need to do to fix this? I can think this through. I can, I can work this out. And the reason many do not pray more is because pride doesn't fit with us. It, does, it doesn't agree with our, it, prayer doesn't agree with our proud hearts. It's because of pride that we're kept from praying. Now, of course, it is possible to be proud and still pray. That is possible. We can fold our hands, we can close our eyes, And we can sincerely pray. But if God doesn't do what we think he should do, if he doesn't answer the prayer for healing that we think he should answer, if he doesn't give us the job that we think we need, if he doesn't answer our prayers to to solve some relational problem, to heal some broken relationship, if he doesn't answer the prayers that we think he should answer, a sure sign of a pride-infected prayer is that we will get upset, we will be disappointed, and we might even give up on praying altogether. If God's not going to do what I want him to do, forget it. I'm not going to keep praying. And the assumption is, is that I know what is better than God. So it is possible to pray a whole lot and still exclude God from our life because proud prayers do not seek God. When we're, when a sure sign that we are praying a proud prayer is that we are seeking our will. And as long as we're seeking our will and we're caught up in our head, we're actually not even welcoming God into our life. We just want him to do stuff for us. We want him to stay out of things. And as long as he gives us what we want, we don't need him. We're good. Proud prayers exclude God from our life. They keep us from seeking God. They simply express what we want. In order to welcome God's presence into our life, 
in order to experience his power and his peace and all the good things that God wants to bring to us, we need humility. The problem with this is, is that we are not humble, and we can't be humble on our own. To experience humility, we must look outside of ourselves. We must take the, the, the focus off of ourselves. We must we must somehow stop being preoccupied with ourselves and become occupied with something else, something outside of ourselves. So an activity that I am particularly fond of and have been so since I was four years old, I learned how to ski, learned how to snow ski. I was privileged to have parents that uh, got me out when I was a a youngster uh, got me on some skis, and, and uh, we would often go, as a family, we'd, we'd take trips um, annually. We'd go for several days, and we'd go skiing um, during the holidays, and during this time, my parents would get us in ski classes, and so we'd learn from instructors, and we took enough ski classes that my brother and I, we, we got pretty good at skiing. We were really comfortable skiing a variety of different terrains, whether it was steep or, or groomed or, or moguls or whatever. We, we, were, we were comfortable skiing a, a variety of terrains. Um, so with the experience that I've had skiing different places, um, I can easily think of myself as a pretty good skier. Now, our local mountain, that's this one right here, Mount Ashland, it's kind of known for being a a steep, difficult mountain. They say if you can ski well at Mount Ashland, if you're comfortable skiing there, you can pretty much ski just about anywhere. And I've had the chance to ski there, and I feel pretty comfortable on that mountain. But on Thursday, this last Thursday, I met a guy who put my skiing ability in its proper place. (laughs) Um, My wife and I, we had the chance to to go see a ski film on Thursday evening. And um, at this showing of the ski film, one of the athletes in the ski film was present there to, to meet people and to you know, sign, sign autographs and stuff. And this guy, he had hiked up to the top of this mountain here. Uh, that's uh, over 2,000, or sorry, <laughs> over 20,000 feet above sea level. This, this is Mount Denali. It's the tallest mountain in North America. And just to get to the top of this mountain, a person not only has to be in good physical condition, they've got to be tough. The conditions, when you're hiking at that elevation, it's brutal, really difficult. Muscles burning, lungs burning. It's difficult. And not only is it difficult, but it's steep. Difficult climb. This guy summited Denali. And then he skied down incredibly challenging terrain. Well, what was even more impressive about this was that this guy, (laughs) I'm talking to him, I look down, this guy is missing his right leg from his knee down. So as I watched this film of this guy skiing down Mount Denali and making it look easy, I was humbled I'm looking at that. This is really impressive. Not only is he skiing really difficult terrain, doing this incredible physical feat, but he's doing it with one leg. He's skiing on one ski. While I look at myself, like if I just become preoccupied with myself and just, just kind of compare myself with myself, I can seem pretty good. Like I, as I evaluate my spiritual experience, man, Brian, you're doing pretty good. Look at you. You pray, you preach, read the Bible, do good things. Look at you, man. You're doing great. And if I happen to come across something in my, some character flaw in my life, 
if I just keep thinking about it, I'm pretty good at justifying it, too. Well, you're doing that, you know, because of this and this. Well, you know, of course, anyone would be having this problem or this challenge if they were doing it. You know, I'm really good at justifying myself. But when I look at God and I look at his character, I'm humbled because I see what goodness really is. And it just blows everything I bring to the table just off. (laughs) I see his beauty, his character. To cure our pride, this is what God tells us to do in 2 Chronicles 7.14. He says, He says this. Let me put it up there. He says, seek my face. Now, in Bible times, they viewed the face as the expression of character, and we still see it that way today, too. But this was something that that they related it to. When when they looked at someone's face, they they would look for character. And so when God says, seek my face, he's saying, seek my character. Seek who I am. Seek the attributes that make God, God. He is creator, He is Savior. He is friend. He is full of grace. No matter what you have done, you can go to him, and he offers grace for you. He says, seek my face. This is goodness. You want to know what patience looks like? Look to God. You want to know what empathy looks like? Look to God. You want to know what forgiveness looks like? Look to God. You want to know what love looks like, what family looks like? Look to God. Seek my face. God is wonderful. But we cannot seek his face and not become painfully aware of our inadequacies, of our flaws, of our defects, our hang-ups, our ugliness. Sadly, the fear of being exposed, of our ugliness being painfully brought to our awareness, keeps many people from seeking God's face. And so, graciously, before telling us to ever seek his face, God tells us to do something that is really amazing, really powerful. He tells us something truly humbling. We find it in verse 14 at the very beginning. He says, look look at what he calls us. He says, if my people who are called by my name. He says this incredible statement in the context, not of people behaving well. It's not, his people are This is not in the situation where his people are are committed to him and and going to church and doing everything, you know, just fully devoted to God. The context is him, his people being unfaithful. And he says, when my people are unfaithful, when they're going after other gods, when they're rejecting me, when they're denying me, when they're just disrespecting my authority and my rightful position, at that moment, he calls us his people. My people who are called by God my name. Even though we might reject him, just like a loving parent holds their child close, no matter what kind of mess they have made. This is what a loving parent does. They embrace their children, no matter how many dirty diapers they've had. God welcomes us also. He calls us his people, even when we are at our worst. So we can know that when we go into his presence, when we seek his face and we see the immensity of his goodness and we are, we are just painfully reminded of how sinful and how bad we are, in that moment we can know that God holds us close and he still calls us his people, called by his name. He does not reject us, though we might feel shame, though we might be worthy of rejection. God holds us close like a loving parent 
holds a child close who has made a big mess. Pride keeps God out of our life. But if we humbly pray, if we seek his face, if we turn from our self-centered, self-preoccupied ways, then God says, I will hear, I will forgive, and I will heal. God longs to fill our life with blessing. And he has everything that we need, and he has it in abundance. He's not going to be sparing in his blessings in our life. The reason, however, that you and I do not receive it is because we're too proud to accept it. We think that we're okay. I think that I'm okay. And that's why I don't, I don't pray more. I think that, no, I'm, I'm all right. But if I'm willing to humbly pray and recognize my absolute need of him and the true reality of my, my, my lack, if I'm willing to accept that, God is there to fill me with every spiritual blessing. I mean, his presence brings everything to us. And so he's calling us not to just seek his goodness, but to seek him. That's what it means to seek his face, is to seek a relationship with him, to intentionally cut out the distractions in our life daily, that we're spending time with him in his presence, maybe turning the phone off, maybe um, going to a separate place, planning ahead, putting it in our schedule, saying, I need this because I am desperately needy going to him and seeking him, seeking who he is, whether he gives us what we want or not, that is humility. And that is where fullness comes from. God answers prayer. We know this, right? The Bible tells us, and we've seen it happen time and time again. Every Tuesday evening at 6 p.m., our church gathers online on Zoom. If you haven't been a part of this, I encourage you to, to check it out. If you, haven't, if you don't know how to do that, just get the, the e-newsletter. If you don't know how to do that, just sign up for it. Give us your email address. Put it in the box back there. We'll get you the newsletter. We'll give you the link. But every Tuesday evening at 6 p.m., we gather for prayer. And I see this happen all the time. At the beginning of this prayer time, we spend an hour praying. For the first 20 to 30 minutes, we spend time thanking God for his answers to prayer, praising him for who he is. We spend time seeking his face, looking at his character, thanking him, adoring him, gazing upon his goodness. And as we spend time seeking his face, it happens every time. This amazing thing happens. The burdens in our life lift. It happens. I know this. Like, I lead out in the prayer time. I know this. And yet, my proud heart still resists going to this prayer time. Like, I know that I'm going to experience peace. I know that there's going to be fulfillment. I know that it's going to be wonderful. And yet, I say, ah, man, do I really have to go? I pride, I'm so sick. Pride is so involved in my thinking that I can know something works and still not do it because it doesn't appeal to my sensibilities. If you suffer pride from pride like I do, then I want to invite you to stop and pray. That's the cure. Stop and pray. Humble yourself and pray. Seek God's face. This is not about asking God to do a bunch of stuff. Yes, God wants us to express our needs to him. I'm not saying that. But more than all of that, God wants us to seek him. Because when we have him, we get everything that we need. Seek his face. Go to him. Not with your, not with your list of to-dos for him, but to seek his face, to, to adore him for who he is. Who is God? 
to seek him, to seek a relationship with him. And that requires sacrifice. It's not going to be comfortable. It requires sac- Just like any relationship requires sacrifice. Any intimate relationship that you have, if you're married, if you have a best friend or anything, all of that requires sacrifice. Like, if you're going to be a parent, you're going to have a relationship with your kids, it's going to require sacrifice. Like, you're going to give up your life, basically, if you're going to have a relationship with your child. Like, it requires sacrifice. It's not always comfortable, but the result is this close relationship with God. So if you suffer from pride, I invite you to pray. And to not just pray, but to pray with someone else. That is the implication of 2 Chronicles 7.14. He says, if my people, it's a corporate call. He's calling us to pray with other people, to pray as a family, to pray as friends, to pray together with other people. He's calling us to pray with others. So if you're currently not praying with anyone, I invite you to, to find someone to pray for. Church is a great place to find somebody like that. Come to prayer time. 6 p.m. on Tuesday evening. Find somebody to pray with. We need that accountability to pray together. It calls us. Having that accountability um, encourages us, rather, to enter into this difficult, humble experience of prayer. The cure for pride may not feel pleasant, but if you're willing to stop and pray, the healing will happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you don't hold our sins against us. Thank you that you don't become impatient with us, impatient with our pride. Thank you that you continue to draw us. God, I pray for myself and for each of my family here, those who are here present, those who are watching online. I pray, God, that you give us the good sense to pray that you would cure us of our pride by directing our attention to your incredible goodness, that we would humble ourselves and seek your face. Father, please put it within us to do that. Give us the good sense to do what we know to work. And I pray that you would give us such a taste of your character that we would want more and more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.